The reading today is from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 24 to 52, and it can be found on page 284 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back of church. Okay, 1 Samuel, chapter 14. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself of my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth, because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of his, this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and, taking sheep and cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look! The men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood on it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle, sheep, and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone bought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let's go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let's inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul, therefore, said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there, I and Jonathan my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. 
Saul said, May God deal with me. May it be ever so severely. If you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance against Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed the role, the rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hand of those who plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. The name of his elder daughter was Merab, and that of his younger daughter was Michal. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahiraz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father, Kish, and Abner's father, Ner, were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, John Mason Brown was an American theatre critic in the middle part of the uh, 20th century, and he once reviewed a performance of King Lear uh, in which he said this about the main actor. He said, uh, he played the king as if he were afraid someone else would play the ace. He played the king as if he were afraid that someone else would play the ace. It's the kind of witty comment that theatre critics are supposed to come up with. Uh, and, uh, you know, his, his point was, you know, there wasn't a lot of confidence in it. You know, he had a good card, he was playing a big role, but he was a bit unsure of himself, wondered if he was really had enough. Uh, maybe you've been in that position when you play a game of cards. You've been dealt a good card or a good hand, but you're like, ooh, maybe it's not going to be enough to win. Maybe someone's got more than me. Um, and it gets at something, I think, uh, that, that idea. Uh, and I think as we've been walking through the life of King Saul, the first king of, of Israel, there's something of that quotation that rings true of Saul and his life. He plays the king, but always with Saul, there's this little bit of self-doubt, this little bit of a lack of confidence in, in various uh, ways. Is he really enough? Is he really the right person for the job? And our passage today is sort of like the end of the section on Saul in 1 Samuel. It's the end of his sort of uh, bit of the story. And it highlights that as Saul has played the king, he's not done a brilliant job. He hasn't done a brilliant job of being the king that he was supposed to be. He might have played the king, but, but not with full conviction. And we'll see that as we walk through this slightly unusual passage. Uh, but just because Saul has, has done that, just because he's, he's messed up and he makes bad decisions and bad choices, and we'll see some of them in the passage, that doesn't mean that God isn't at work behind the scenes. Very often in the Old Testament, you see people's choices, things going wrong on the surface, but, but behind the scenes, you can see God's hand at work. Uh, and even here, so verse 24, where our passage begins, 
the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul bound the people under an oath. So it's a day of distress that day. But just one verse earlier. On that day, the Lord saved Israel. On the same day. Saul might make bad decisions, but that doesn't stop God's good plans. Saul might make bad decisions, that doesn't stop God's good plans. Or or to put it a different way, um, Saul might play the king badly, but God has an ace up his sleeve. Okay? Saul might play the king badly, but God has an ace up his sleeve. And um, this passage is all about the end of Saul's kingship, uh, the, the failures of Saul, and yet God is at work in and amongst it. But to see how Saul fails, we need to remember what his role as king was. So we have a diagram here that we might have seen before, uh, God, king, people. Um, and this basically comes out of um, what God said the king of his people should be like. Back in Deuteronomy, when he gave the law, he said, you may have a king one day, but here's how the king's supposed to behave. And it, it, tells, it tells them that the king is supposed to listen to God. Listen to his word. Write it down for himself. He's supposed to be humble before God so that he will know how to rule well. And Deuteronomy 17 also says, uh, as well as being humble before God, the king is supposed to be gentle with the people. He's supposed to rule kindly like God does. And then it says, if you do that, if the king follows God and, and is humble before him and gentle with his people... Then he and his sons will reign after him for generations. He will have a long life, long reign. Uh, God will bless him. So that's the role of the king. Humble before God, gentle with the people, that he may reign a long time, he and his children after him. Uh, And our passage here is looking at how Saul measures up. So I've called it Saul Plays the King. And it's a drama in three acts. Okay, And it looks at all those different features of the relationship of the king. So let's start with Saul plays the king, act one, and that's about how does Saul do with the people, Saul and the people. So, verse 24, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Saul's attitude to the people is harsh and overbearing. He binds them with this strict oath that they are not to eat anything. That is an oath way beyond anything God had asked of the people. And this kind of attitude of of a king being sort of overbearing and overly authoritarian is quite typical of somebody who struggles with self-doubt. Uh, maybe you have seen this, where someone's promoted at work to a job that's a bit too much for them, and they're not quite sure they're up to the role. And what do they do? They come down with a heavy hand and hard and try and control everybody, and you must do it like this, and you must, because those insecurities come out. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that in Saul here. This command to strict obedience. You will do what I say. I will show you that I'm a real king and you will listen to my words. It's also quite selfish. Do you notice how he talks about, I have avenged myself on my enemies. A lot of it's about Saul. Uh, And and maybe in the back of his mind somewhere, he sort of thinks it it might be kind of holy to have a fast. Uh, you, You know, that's the sort of thing holy people will do. So if we fast in this way, maybe God will blesses and encourages. Now, God hasn't asked him to do any of that, 
But nonetheless, this is what he does. He binds the people with this strict, overbearing oath. And then it all kind of unravels and falls apart. And there's lots of little ironic twists and turns in the story. And whenever you see these kind of ironic twists and turns in a story like this in the Bible, you're meant to sort of figure out that that's because God's at work behind the scenes. Okay, so there are lots of bits of irony. First of all, he's given them this, this oath about eating. And then verse 25, the army entered the woods. And wouldn't you know it, there was honey on the ground. What a coincidence. After Saul has bound the people not to eat, here they walk into a wood and all of a sudden all this tasty honey is just there in front of them. What a coincidence. Verse 27, Jonathan, Saul's son, the great hero of last week, had not heard the oath. What a coincidence that Jonathan walks into this wood full of tasty treats having not known there was an oath in the mix. And then there are little wordplay bits of, of jokes. You might remember Saul said, anyone who eats will be cursed. The Hebrew word for that is arul. When Jonathan eats, though, in verse 27, his eyes brightened. And the Hebrew word is or. A very similar word. It's a bit of wordplay. You were supposed to get cursed, but actually your eyes light up. It doesn't go the way Saul says. Uh, and whereas Jonathan's eyes are brightened, verse 29, Jonathan says, my father has made trouble, or literally muddied, the waters. Uh, the image is one of someone stirs up mud in a pool so that you can't see through the water. Uh, whereas Jonathan's eyes are bright, he can see clearly, Saul's made everything murky. Uh, the whole thing sort of falls apart. And these little ironies are there to say, yeah, Saul's made this oath. But that was never what God wanted him to do. This is a harsh and overbearing oath, unnecessary. And worst of all, it completely defeats the point of why Saul swore the oath. He wanted a great victory, do you remember? We won't eat until we've had this great victory over our enemies. But look at verse 30, Jonathan's assessment. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from the enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater. It even defeats what Saul himself wanted, a victory, a great victory. And if it was intended as a kind of religious holy thing that they would fast, well that doesn't go very well either because in the next few verses uh, we see the men are so hungry that when they finally get to the plunder, uh, they pounce, verse 32. That's, that's the word for a predator, a wild animal ripping something apart. And they do behave like wild animals. They tear into everything they can get, and quick as possible, they can eat all they can see, not worrying about the fact there's blood in the food. Now, now, God had said in the law, they weren't to eat food with blood in. And so look at what Saul's rash oath has done. If it was intended to make the people holy, well, it actually has made them ceremonially unclean as they go and eat all this blood. It is a self-defeating oath. It is an overbearing oath. And the ironies and the way it unravels shows us that God does not think it was a good idea. It's worth us pausing just for a moment there and thinking about that. It can sometimes seem holy, can't it, to, to apply strict rules. Uh, it can seem good to, to show our commitment to God by saying, well, I'm going to do this. 
even if God's not asked us to. Actually, those kinds of overbearing oaths are not good. If we're someone who's in some sort of spiritual leadership or authority, maybe you're a parent trying to guide your children, uh, maybe, uh, maybe you have a, a leadership role in, in church somewhere, and maybe you're just looking for a church or, or looking for a group to be a part of, it's worth taking this on board, isn't it? We don't want leaders who will tie us down with heavy burdens that God has not commanded us to carry. That's one of the things Jesus is so critical of the Pharisees for. The way they place heavy burdens on people that God himself has not placed, even where they sound holy. In Colossians, Paul says those rules have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining the sinful nature. Saul and the people, he is not gentle with the people, he is overbearing with this unnecessary oath. That's Act 1. Act 2, Saul plays the king, Act 2, Saul and God. Well, after the, the carnage, as they rip into these animals and eat with this blood, you know, Saul is appalled. You have broken faith, verse 33. And then what he says is, right, let's get a big stone. Now, the purpose of this stone is basically you bring the animals over, you slaughter them, and you drain the blood onto the stone, which was in accordance with the law. In and of itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing that's all done. But, but actually, look how it's interpreted. Verse 35, he doesn't just bring a stone over, he turns it into an altar. This marks Saul's attitude toward God is one of presumption. He presumes that he can act any way he wants without listening to God. If he'd even thought back a chapter earlier, Samuel had told him off for performing a sacrifice. Yet here he is, not just performing more sacrifices, but even building a new altar, a place of worship. And the writer says it was the first time he'd done this. In other words, he's going even further than he did before. He hadn't taken Samuel's rebuke and warning seriously. He does the same thing again and more. He actually builds a brand new altar that God hadn't commanded. And that marks out how Saul relates to God. He doesn't listen to God. He just presumes. Presumes God will be with him. Presumes God will bless him. Presumes he knows what he can do. Saul says, verse 36, let's go down, pursue the Philistines by now, plunder them until dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. You know, again, Saul saying, let's just go and do this. And it takes the priest to chirp up in verse 36. Now, if you remember last week, the priest was from the house of Eli. So he's actually from a rejected line of priests. This is a bad priest. But even he knows that you're supposed to talk to God first and ask him what he thinks, not just presume on God's kindness to you or his uh, support for you. Let's inquire of God here. Shouldn't we ask him what he thinks? When Saul eventually does, he gets no answer. And that is a sign of God's judgment. Because of Paul's, uh, Saul's presumption, God doesn't answer him. It's kind of poetic. He didn't ask God, so now he doesn't get an answer. But even his response to that, again, is typical Saul, isn't it? Another rush. Come on, let's find out. Let's find out. Let's find out who sinned. Doesn't pause and ask God. 
He says, I know what we need to do now. We need to uh, play this, this game, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, this Urim and Thummim in just a, a minute. But just to say, mark this attitude of Saul's, the way he presumes. And you notice the repeated phrase in this section, do whatever seems best to you. It's said twice. That's typical Saul. Doesn't stop and ask God, but he does whatever seems best to him. Well, like the first section with the people, uh, God undoes Saul's plans. Uh, God brings about all sorts of ironies and reversals that unravel what Saul wants. So Saul wants to find out who's committed this great sin. And so he, he plays this kind of a, a game. It, it happens a bit in the Old Testament with these things called Urim and Thummim. And um, this is a, a potential picture. No one really knows what these things are. Okay, I'm just going to level with you. Uh, but people sort of think they're these kind of stones that have these words written on them. And one of the words might mean curse, and one of them might mean innocent, and we're not quite sure. It's a bit like flipping a coin, right? And what you did was, these were special stones, so you threw them, and the idea was God would make the stone land the way that revealed who was right and who was wrong. But they can only give a sort of one of two chance, a binary choice between two things, which is why Saul does what he does. So he says, right, me and Jonathan over here, I mean, it's even ironic that he picks Jonathan, and we all know, of course, what Jonathan's done, but Saul doesn't at this point. Me and Jonathan over here, all you guys over there. And Saul's got to think, well, look, the odds are, if someone's made a mistake, it's one of that lot, it's not going to be me and him, right? But he picks Jonathan to be on his side. But then it falls, and it's him and Jonathan. Oh, rats. What am I going to do now? Okay, well, there's two of us left, so we better go you there, me there, and we'll do it again. See what happens. And it lands on Jonathan. Tell me what happened, Jonathan. And Jonathan's admission is really interesting. At the start of his admission, the Hebrew is emphatic. It's like, yes, indeed, I have tasted. As if he's about to make some grand declaration. And then the end is really minimal. Indeed, yes, I did taste the tiniest drop of honey. And for this, I will die? Most commentators seem to think Jonathan's being sarcastic here. Really, Dad? You're going to put me to death for tasting the tiniest little bit of honey. Can you not see how foolish and ridiculous this is? But Saul says it's no laughing matter. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. It's worth pausing here and saying, this is not God's verdict. Uh, the, the way the people keep saying, do whatever seems best to you. Uh, this is what Saul thinks. God is revealing where Saul's actions would lead. Uh, this is not what God wants to happen or thinks should happen. He's bringing Saul up short trying to show him how foolish he's being because his action would lead to his own son's death. But, but Saul's doubled down. He's all in now. So he can't step back and go, oh no, okay, maybe I made a mistake. This is arrogant presumption. And presumption is one of those sins that I think we in the modern day need to be very careful about. In medieval works of theology, they talked a lot about presumption. 
it's interesting that in the last hundred or so years, the church doesn't talk about it very much anymore. Is it because we no longer see it as a sin? Is it because as a culture, do whatever seems best to you actually sounds pretty good to our ears? It's worth dwelling on, isn't it? Whether maybe we are too quick to act and too slow to wait on the Lord and listen to him. Anyway, Saul, Saul and the people, he's not gentle, he's overbearing. Saul and God, he's not humble, he presumes. And we can see that Saul is now coming out unfavorably. There are lots of little comparisons in this chapter. Uh, If you compare Saul with Jonathan, he comes out second best. Heroic Jonathan from last week and failure Saul this week. Even if you compare him with this bad priest, he comes off second best, doesn't he? The priest at least wants to ask God. And ironically, he even comes off second best when compared to his younger self. So in verse 45 and 46, there's, a, there's an ironic reversal again. Remember a couple of chapters ago when there was a mob who wants to put people to death because they didn't recognize Saul as king? And Saul says, no, 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 no one shall be put to death this day. And you think, good on you, Saul. You rescued the people from an angry mob. But, but here it's the mob that has to rescue Jonathan from Saul. Shall Jonathan be put to death? No way. He rescued us. Uh, That's how far Saul has wandered and fallen from his role. Not gentle but overbearing with the people. Not humble but presumptuous before God. Final act. Saul plays the king, act three. This is Saul in the future or Saul and his legacy. Many people have noted this is the end of the Saul section. Uh, It comes with this little summary of his reign from verse 47 onwards, which which happens at the end of someone's story. Now, Saul will appear in the rest of 1 Samuel, but from now on, he's just a a background character. He's just the foil for King David, who's about to enter the stage. Uh, And this is God's verdict on his reign. It's important to see it's not all bad. Verse 48, he fought valiantly. And defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel. You know, he did some good things. Let's not forget that. But it's certainly not all good. The language that's used of him is quite violent and aggressive. The way he he took rule, he assumed rule, and he inflicted punishment. He's not the ideal king that God had in mind. And it's important to see what's missing. Verse 52, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. Just compare that to the judges who had ruled previously in Israel. Uh, At the end of a judge's reign, it would often say there was peace in the land for so many years. But not Saul. There's no peace. And the other thing that's missing, although it mentions Saul's family a little bit and goes into some detail, the one thing that's missing is something that most kings, if you read the book of 1 and 2 Kings, most of their reigns end with it saying something like, his son reigned after him as king. Not here. Saul said it himself, doesn't he, didn't he? He said that Jonathan was going to die. And even though God doesn't agree with what Saul assesses, that 
He doesn't think Jonathan's worthy of death. There's an ironic, again, in verse 44, there's something ironic there that it will be fulfilled the way Saul says. On the same day, Saul and Jonathan will both die. And Jonathan will not rule in his father's place. That's not a judgment on Jonathan. It's a judgment on Saul. He has failed as a king. The Deuteronomy king who was supposed to be humble before God and gentle with the people. And if he did that, he and his sons would reign many years. But he's been arrogant toward God and brutal with the people. And therefore his son will not reign after him. But as I said at the start, Saul's bad choices don't affect God's good plan. Saul may have played the king badly, but God does have an ace up his sleeve. We're going to meet that ace in the next couple of weeks. It's King David. And ultimately, God's plan is not just for David, but David's greater son, who will genuinely be the people's, the king the people need. Saul was the king they chose, but God in his great kindness is actually going to give them a better king, the king they need. A king who does not tie us down with heavy burdens, but lifts them off. And gives rest to his people. A king who does not arrogantly presume on God, but listens to his word and obeys it. A king whose kingdom will not end, for he has defeated death and has been raised to eternal life, ever to rule on his father's throne. That is King Jesus the perfect king, who, who Saul shows up as being so much more perfect when we see his failures. In a moment, the band uh, are going to come up and lead us in a song, a very appropriate song, a song that draws us to praise what God has, uh, praise the one God has given us as a gift. What a gift of grace Jesus is to us, to be given a king like this. Let me pray and then we'll stand if we're able and sing together. Father, thank you for this passage. It, it does feel unusual to us. There are lots of oddities in it. And yet you give it to us to show us the history of your people, how leaders do fail and fall short. And that just highlights what kind of leader we need, what kind of king we need. And so as we sing to that king now, may you thrill our hearts and fill them with joy that in your merciful kindness you have given us just that king. And we pray it in his most precious name.